0: And if you're able, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, which this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I wonder as we read that, how are we doing with that, right? No problem. I, I was stuck at let love be genuine. I'm like, okay, I quit. Let alone all the rest of those admonitions of the, of the Apostle Paul recognize what he's doing there. He is writing a letter to the church. So he is talking to the people of God. This is not an evangelistic sermon. This is not how to become a Christian. He's speaking to the church, the church that has as its mission, go and make disciples of all nations. He's basically saying, here's what a community of disciples looks like. You want to know what a community of disciples looks like, how they're manifested, this is it. A community of disciples is a community of love. Now, we are going through the Lord's Prayer, and what we're doing is we are taking each week one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, taking a passage of Scripture that might uh, exposit that topic a little bit, not fully, not comprehensively. I mean, you know how many passages of Scripture I could have chosen for deliver us from evil? I have no material to work with there. What do you think? Okay? But I mean, so... I chose this one because commentators typically translate this particular clause, this petition, let us not be led into the testing. That's the the literal translation there. Let us not be led into the trial, into the testing, but deliver us from evil. So in other words, the picture that's being given when Jesus prays this is not meant simply to speak of our individual temptations, although that's included, but it's bigger than that. What we need to be careful in our interpretation is that we reduce the interpretation. It obviously includes our individual temptations that beset our lives, but it's a larger, more comprehensive testing, tribulation, trial, that if you think back and we remember to our study that we did of Revelation, over the Advent season, we said that the tribulation is the entirety of our particular age between the two Advents of Christ. His first Advent, that we celebrate at Christmas time, and his second Advent, which is his bodily triumphant return to consummate his kingdom. And in between this time is the time of trial, the time of testing, the time of tribulation. If I wanted to use Peter's words, he describes it as a wilderness journey. He calls us sojourners and exiles. Jesus is teaching us, don't be led into the great time of testing, but instead deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. Or in other words, if I could put it the way Paul puts it, here in Romans chapter 12, face evil. Don't minimize it, don't wallow in it, but overcome evil with good. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let it defeat you, don't let it overpower you. Don't wallow in it, don't minimize it, but overcome it with your life of love together as disciples of Christ in community. One commentator put it this way. He says, When we are praying, let us not be brought into the time of testing, into the great tribulation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer, like all the other petitions in the Lord's Prayer, is firmly grounded in the life and work of Jesus himself. He writes, we have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples, but that when he prayed it himself, the answer was no. That when Jesus put it together with an earlier part of the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, and he held these two, thy will be done and deliver us from evil, and he held them side by side, he found that for him, God's will involved him in a unique vocation. That he would be the one who was led to the testing. He would be the one who'd be led to the greatest tribulation. He would be the one who'd be led and who was not delivered from evil. That this vocation is unique to Jesus where he goes, the rest of us cannot follow. The rest of us are therefore commanded to pray that we may be delivered from the power of evil and we can pray that prayer with confidence precisely because Jesus has met fully the forces of evil, the darkness of evil, the authorities and the princes of power, and by the cross and resurrection, defeated it once for all. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, as we enter how to pray and live this prayer, lead us not into the time of testing, but deliver us from evil. He prayed that, We would do so knowing the reality of a victory he won on the cross when he, as Paul says in Colossians 2, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him on the cross. We can go, see, we can enter into praying and living this prayer for ourselves in the reality that Christ has triumphed over ultimate evil. So at the beginning, when we learn how to do this, we recognize we do so by grace. As a matter of fact, the entirety of this passage, if you look at this passage, it begins in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Jesus says, in view of God's mercy, and then the rest of Romans chapter 12. See, he spent the first 11 chapters describing the gospel. All that the gospel was. And then he begins verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, with the word, therefore. In other words, based on everything that preceded, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And now he begins to describe the life of discipleship. A life of using your gifts, being a steward of God's gift. A life of being a living sacrifice. And a life, as it says here in verse 21, of overcoming evil. With good, overcoming evil with the quality of love. Obviously, according to God's vision, love is not just simply a warm, squishy emotion. Love is the ultimate weapon. Francis Schaefer called love the ultimate mark of the Christian. So, in other words, what we have here is God's vision. God's if He says, "Church, here's your commission: go and make disciples." He's saying here. Here is what the life of discipleship looks like. Here's what it entails. Go and make disciples. And you want to know what the end product looks like? Do you want to know what we're heading towards? This is it. A couple different ways you can put it in Scripture. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, Now I will show you the most excellent way. And what did he do? He began to elaborate on the life of love. When Paul was getting ready to die... And he was passing on the gospel baton to his protege, his disciple, Timothy. And he's giving him all the doctrine, all the teaching. He then says to Timothy, the aim of this teaching, the aim of our charge, the goal, the vision, the direction, the trajectory, here's what I want it to end up with. He said "Is love. He said to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. So a community of disciples, this is God's vision For his church. That God through his spirit empowered people. You recognize that's where we are? This is where God's name and eyes dwell. We are the spirit empowered temple. Sanctuary of the living God. And he wants this to be the community of love. The community living the vocation. Of conquering evil with love. Of overcoming evil with good. What does it look like? The text shows us two ways. The text will do what I'm calling community love and then conquering love. Community love and conquering love. And all of it, I need to say this and I'll probably say it again, this is a difficult passage in many ways. It's a passage filled with admonitions. Every one of these admonitions is grounded in in view of God's mercy. So in other words, it's like if you have, to the degree you have a picture and you appropriate, it's like if anyone comes to me who is thirsty, to the degree that you are drinking from the fountain of life that is Jesus, to the degree that you have a view of God's mercy, the aim of your charge, the aim of this charge will be this kind of life, the manifestation of this kind of community of love. Look with me at verse 9, and here's how it begins and what it looks like. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I guess it's okay to have competition within the church, but here's what we should be outdoing one, competing with. I'm going to show more honor to that person than you are. Imagine if that was our life. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Dan Allender has written what I think is the best book on the topic of love. It's called Bold Love, and he writes this, and he says, all of us want out sometimes. Love is too hard. Forgiveness seems impossible. Why try when our efforts to love seem to make matters worse? Even in our best relationships, the wounds of the battle hardly seem worth it sometimes. But it's hard for a human heart to live long or well without love. Love offers life. It softens the dark moments and keeps the heartbeat of hope alive. Love is built... Love is both a mysterious friend and at times a terrible disappointment. Love one day satisfies and the next seems to strip the heart bare before the cold winds of betrayal. Allender writes, if we are honest, we often have mixed feelings about love. Friends, I'll be honest with you. If this doesn't resonate with you, if you don't feel this ambivalence, this sense of, I want love, but love is hard, I want to show great. But if I do so, if I step out, the risk of rejection, the risk of betrayal, the feeling of disappointment, the ache of loneliness, if, you, if that doesn't resonate with you, I'm not sure you are wrestling with the biblical definition of love, of what the Bible has to say about love. C.S. Lewis put it best, the only way to be sure you'll never get hurt The only way to be sure you'll never have your heart broken is never give it to anyone. But friends, that's not a disciple. That's not a church. And that's not the community of love. See, he begins with these commands. Let love be genuine. In other words, have it be sincere, unhypocritical, not phony. In other words, the church is not to be known for a culture of simple niceness. But instead, we are to be known for truth. We are to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, it might seem kind of strange to us to hear, wait a second, I'm supposed to love and hate at the same time? How do I do that? One commentator said, we cannot love rightly without hating rightly. And here's what he meant by that. Where do we learn to love the right things and hate the right things? Only the word of God. It is only, see, part of our commitment to truth is a commitment to the truth of God's word. That's where we learn what we are to love. That's where we are to learn what love looks like, what love is, how it's the ultimate weapon. That's where we learn how to hate rightly. See, and again, how do we do this? How do we, practically speaking, be this community of love? And that's where these admonitions fit together. Paul is not just throwing out truth bombs and kind of seeing what sticks. Everything is connected. He's just told us things. If you're feeling a little bit of the conviction of God's word, good. You should. Which is why he says, see, we should hear let love be genuine, unhypocritical, commitment to truth, and it should get us to fly. This is what he means by keep your spiritual fervor. Do not be slothful, never lacking in zeal. Be faithful in prayer. Keep hope alive, patient in affliction. See, if we try to do even basic community love, we haven't even gotten to the conquering love, loving difficult people yet. We're talking loving your spouse, loving your children, loving each other, loving people who are genuinely nice to you. And if you're not facing the impossibility of it, You're not resonating what the Bible talks about with love. And what this conviction needs to get us to do is to be not lacking in zeal. We should be running in prayer to, Jesus, it is impossible for me to love my wife. And very impossible for her to love me. Have you ever tried to live with me? We should be convicted with the impossibility of love that gets us to be not lacking in zeal, following, chasing after, pursuing with the means of grace God has given us. We should never be satisfied with the quality of our spiritual life. That's why it says never lacking spiritual fervor. The thing that should show us that is the quality of your love life. The quality of your relationships should drive you to spiritual disciplines. That's how they fit together. These admonitions are the spiritual resources. They are the combustion cycle that God provides for us to be, in, to be able to be this community of love. That is, and this is what the church is to be, a contrast society to the world. We should be showing this, what it means to bear witness in our ordinary lives. doesn't mean we transform the world, but it means we show the world the contrast between the church and the world. This is what Francis Schaeffer meant when he said, love is the mark of the Christian. The quality of our love will show a contrast. Here's the world's love, here's the church's love. See them, put them both up, here's the contrast. That should drive us to prayer and being in the word, and pulling together, and never shooting each other in the foot, so to speak. That's community love. That was the easy part of the sermon. (laughs) Are you ready to move on to conquering love? That was dealing with people who shake your hand and smile and say, it's good to see you. Now, look at the next part. Look at verse 14. Here's people who don't think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And look at what Paul says. See, friend, we have a high view of God's word. We want to take it seriously. This is what it says. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm only giving you what it says here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Okay, look at this. Conquering love. God has ordained it that love would be the ultimate weapon. What did he say in 2 Corinthians 10? The weapons of our warfare have divine power to demolish strongholds. Love is the ultimate weapon. How do we love and defeat evil in these situations where people are not treating us well or treating us kindly? It says, bless, do not curse, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Be willing to associate with people who are just not like you. Don't just associate with those who have an affinity with you. Don't just associate with those who are. It's easy to be with people who are in a different position, a different stage, and state of life. Associate with the lowly, and then don't think of yourself more than you are. Never be wise in your own sight. Be certain of God's word. Never be certain of yourself. Do not be wise in your own sight. You're not such hot stuff. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Tim Keller says, when we look at practically how we do this, he says, what God is calling us here through the words of Paul to the church at Rome is a deep empathy. It's understanding. And it takes listening. He writes, it's connecting your emotional life with theirs. You were called to make an emotional identification with the person you are loving. When it says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, Dr. Keller says we are called here to a discipline. This is why I said love is not a warm, squishy emotion. Love is a quality of action and life that takes work and discipline. That's why you should have a love-hate relationship with, with it. He says, we're called here to a discipline in which we stop and seek to understand the inner world of another person. Let me read that again. That means instead of us just getting out what we have to say, us making our point, us making sure we're heard, us making sure they know what we think, we stop, we seek to listen, we seek to understand, and we seek to understand the inner world, without saying it's right or wrong of another person. We talk about applying truth, and applying truth is not, it's not important, it's necessary. But how can you learn how to apply truth if you don't know what you're applying truth to? Do we think we're going to be effective in our strategy just to take truth and go, I'm going to throw it against the wall and see what sticks? If a coach did that in a sports team, he'd be fired instantly. And the only way to be able to do that is to understand where the other person is coming from, their inner world. That's what Paul: rejoice with those who rejoice. You need to. What are you rejoicing over? Weep with those who weep, so that you will know where and how and in what manner, identify with their inner world, which is why the scriptures are unbelievably amazing. We have our hermeneutical principle of scripture interpreting scripture. Listen to what James chapter 1 says. When he instructs us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and quick and slow to become angry. How many of us practice, or even try to practice, being slow to speak and quick to listen. Genuinely understanding the other person, which is why I think just practically speaking, we have to ask so many more questions when relating to others than making statements. I'm always amazed in the word of God how God, who knows everything, okay, you have something like Adam and Eve sinning, and God will say to Adam, Who told you you were naked? Now, did he have a memory lapse? He doesn't know? I thought he was omniscient. What is he doing there? He's modeling how to relate. He's trying to get Adam to discover for himself. God, ar- God not only knows all truth, he is all truth, he creates all truth. He doesn't have to seek truth. What is he doing He's modeling how to love and how to relate. He's actually confronting Adam, but he's doing so in such a winsome way, so Adam discovers the truth, so that Adam can be restored and repent and find life. Oh, that we would—that would be the quality of how we would relate. That we would be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. And, of course, this is where everything fits in together again. Because how do we do this? Only You can only do this to the degree that you are saturated. And your self-image is saturated with the gospel. This is why he says, do not be haughty, do not be conceited, don't be, do not be wise in your own sight. He's basically saying, have a gospel self-image that basically says, you're not wise in your own sight, but in view of God's mercy... You receive the righteousness of Christ, his victory through the cross, and you have nothing left to prove. You want to know why we are not slow to speak? You want to know why we're quick to speak? We're trying to prove ourselves. Sometimes only to ourselves. We're trying to prove ourselves. I I need to convince myself I know my stuff. I'm convincing myself I know this. I'm right, so I'll make sure I get it. If Jesus has justified you, if you never think of yourself more highly than you are, you have God's mercy, you're justified, you're counted as righteous in Jesus, why are you validating yourself? You have all the validation you could ever want. We need to learn to apply the gospel and the dynamic of the gospel in our lives. See, if you have a gospel self-image where you are not so concerned with yourself because you're already proven and validated by Christ, you can concentrate all your energy on the restoration and the needs of the other person. The needs that they have in their brokenness and in their life, their needs with God, their needs with others, even their needs with themselves. And we are not led into the time of testing but we are overcoming evil. We're delivered from evil by the manifestation of goodness and love in our lives, which leads to the last section. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Now, this is very important. If po- sometimes it's not possible. This is not saying you never erect boundaries. You don't let somebody else sin against you. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And here's the key. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, notice what it's saying here. When we don't leave it to the wrath of God, what are we doing? We are basically putting ourselves in God's seat. We're putting ourselves on God's throne We're taking the wrath upon, and we're deciding, we know what's best. I know exactly what should happen to that other person here. I'm omniscient. I have the ability to discern what they need. I know what they need, and I'll take it. Friends, let me tell you something right now. None of us are qualified to be God. We don't qualify for the job description. We're not holy enough. We're not wise enough. We're not knowledgeable enough, nor are we sovereign enough. Leave it to God and just love. And notice the promise. I will repay, says the Lord, which means one of two things. He will repay. Either the person will not repent, and they will pay for the sin themselves, or they will repent, and Christ has paid for the sin for them. No matter what, the sin is not swept under the rug. God is a just God. Which is part of what it means here in verse 20 when he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Through this contrast way of relating, this counterintuitive way of relating, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. You know what that means? That means in one way, shape, or form, you may be leading them to repent and be restored, which is the goal. Can you imagine what would happen if God's goal with us was not restoration? Earlier in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, in chapter 2, Paul wrote, for it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Why do we think with other people it's got to be our meanness that leads to repentance? It's good enough for God to have kindness lead to repentance, but I'm going to do it my way. I think being mean is the way to lead to repentance. Friends, let's take seriously the word of God and be the community of disciples He calls us to be. Which is how verse 21 starts to come to fruition. We're not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. See, the only way we're going to be able to do this, the only practical way, is through the cross. The only way to do this is to see, as Paul wrote earlier in his letter, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Allender writes, Love is dependent on forgiveness. The extent to which someone truly loves will be positively correlated to the degree the person is stunned and silenced by the wonder that his huge debt has been canceled. Listen to this. The degree, the extent to which someone truly loves will be positively correlated. This means you will love to the degree that you are blown away, that you are stunned and silenced by the wonder that God cancels your debt. The aim of our charge is love. How much have you? How much are you being stunned and silenced by the wonder of God's mercy? Father, I just pray that I would grow, that we would grow as a church. In one sense, you're always calling us to maturity. And this is a picture of what maturity looks like. This is a picture of what it means. I think, to me, a parallel of this might be Ephesians chapter 4. When you say, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ, so that we would come to the fullness of the stature of the measure of God. You're calling us to the fullness of the stature of God. We do so through the foundation of grace, knowing there is no condemnation. I pray that we would be free, that that foundation would free us to be able to look and evaluate ourselves biblically. The biblical evaluation is the quality of our love. How are we loving? That's the aim of our charge. I pray that that would be how we evaluate ourselves. Not condemn ourselves because there's no condemnation, but how we would examine ourselves and then as Jesus invited us, all who are thirsty to come to him and drink, may we be stunned and silenced all the more into the wonder that you cancel the debt of our not loving. Every time we don't love, you've canceled that debt, and I pray that that would free us to make it our aim to learn to love better. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.